This is the GeoVersive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Don Shelby. Welcome back to GeoVersive Earth Intelligence. Thank you for staying with us. The longer you stay with us, the more you're going to know. We've got two great experts. Myra Jackson is with us again, as well as Joe Robertson, the founder of Geoversive.net. If you want to know any more about Geoversive, uh, you can see all the writings, all of the articles, and you can see an explanation of what Geoversive is all about. But this is called Geoversive Earth Intelligence, and it's called Geoversive Earth Intelligence for a reason, because we can learn uh, from the intelligence already in Earth, already in nature, to overcome the problems that are facing us right now, primarily in the area of climate change, but we know that there are five simultaneous crises facing us right now in the United States and around the globe. So let's bring them in. Myra Jackson, hi. How are you this morning? Uh, it's, uh, I'm really happy to be here. Good. And Joe, you heard something uh, recently that uh, has you inspired. Yes. Uh, it's the kind of thing that I think not everybody would understand the power of at, at first. But I want to start by saying with these converging crises that people are experiencing in health and environment, collapse of biodiversity, economic, uh, social injustice, all of these crises converging, we have an opportunity to rebuild for a better future. We have an opportunity to reinvent prosperity. If we make investments in a green recovery, we're going to see millions of new jobs created that would not have otherwise existed. We're going to see an uplifting of people who are working for a living, people who are trying to build stable middle-class lives. Um, we're also going to see millions of lives saved. If you look just at food systems and what's wrong with them, right now, an estimated 11 million people die prematurely every year because they're not getting the healthy food they need. Fixing our food systems to be healthy, sustainable, and inclusive can save those lives. And we can save millions more if we can eliminate air pollution. Something happened just this week in a meeting of finance ministers. The managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, who's one of the pioneers in ecological economics, said climate change is a profound threat to growth and prosperity. And she added, it is macro-critical. That statement is incredibly powerful because what it means is one of the major international institutions that not only manages money and helps governments manage money, but actually moves a lot of money into the types of economic standards that we live with, has come to the understanding that climate change is macro-critical. Why is that important? Macrocritical is about what makes societies work. It means that if things go right in that area, the overall economy is going to be more prosperous. If things go wrong in that area, the overall economy is going to be degraded. 
And so for the International Monetary Fund to view climate as macrocritical means it's telling every government in the world, if your investments make climate change worse, you are degrading your own economic prospects and the prospects of others. We understand that and we want you to go in the other direction. Invest in a way where you make societies work. And I just wanted to add for context that when we talk about these things, we're not talking about the environment outside of us. We're talking about ourselves as part of the environment. And I wanted to read as a very succinct and powerful illustration of what it means for a society to work. The preamble of the United States Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. When major institutions recognize that climate change and the degradation of natural systems are macro-critical. What they're saying is our ability to build societies that work is on the line. And that means if we use the language of the U.S. Constitution, our rights are on the line. Our humanity is on the line. And that's how we started out this week with that message. The natural rights that accrue to us. Yeah, rights that come from a universal reality, the reality that if, if you exist and want to be able to live and be free from fear and free from threat, that you should recognize that others have that same right. That is the foundation of universal rights. Uh, that is why societies form to provide for the common defense and the general welfare to secure each other and each other's uh, posterity in a real way. Um, those natural rights are at stake. Myra, I'm reminded of a, um, was a Minnesota politician uh, killed early in his life in a plane crash, uh, Paul Wellstone, who said, we all do better when we all do better. Does that resonate with you? Oh, yes, and uh, it brings back a memory of being with Paul Wellstone. Uh, he was he was he was absolutely on fire with that idea. And you know what Joe has just raised is a part of what keeps me so radically optimistic. But you know that's the way we roll at Geoverse of anyway. <laughs> That conversation didn't happen in a vacuum. That conversation and those statements that were made are made within an increasingly focalized conversation around one health, the idea of one health. Because just days before, last week, on September 30th, when the Biodiversity Summit met in New York at the UN, 64 nations had signed on to the Leaders Pledge for Nature 
something I worked on with my partners, an initiative we thought at best we would only see 30 nations sign on to. But on the day that the Biodiversity Summit opened, to make the link between climate change, biodiversity, which gets into this whole movement of understanding that at all levels, decision-making must address health and environmental sustainability as one integrated activity. Do you know what I want you to do, both of you? I want to clear the air on the word sustainability. Uh, Sustainability uh, is one of those words that is used so often these days that it's lost its meaning. I remember when my uh, uh, father, who was a businessman, uh, many, many years ago, 50 years ago, held sustainability meetings and had nothing to do with the environment. It only had to do with finding out tasking individuals to learn whether they had uh, enough of this material. Did they have a source of this material? Did the public still want the product that they were making, or should they redesign the product so that they could have uh, something that the people would buy? They were talking about a way of doing business that would be, in our words and in his, sustainable. That means you were going to have a job tomorrow. You were going to be able to continue. It wasn't going to end because you did the hard work of making sure that that which you were producing was always going to be there. I don't lose the idea that uh, I first learned the word sustainability from a person in business So it's not one of those squishy words about environmentalism. It's about being here tomorrow. Do you agree or disagree? I would say, really, that uh, this, this whole idea around sustainability and the birth of it and why we use it is because of business. And the same with environmental law, to be honest. It, you know, the shall we say the game was already in motion and the cards were already laid down. In fact, the cards were drawn. And that's why during this time we haven't really made progress. So I'm just going to be straight with you because this is a time for us to be real. And what I do see in this conversation is a need for our language to also step up to communicate the moment that we're in. And I think that's part of the interesting part of this time that we're in. And we're doing that by lifting the lid on the systems that we have been trying to sustain and to look at what are the assumptions that underlie all of it. Because what we're looking at is this deep desire that comes from science and comes from traditional knowledge that if we're wise we will be sure that what we are creating and building has some sort of alignment and ability to breathe with the organic living world of which we're a part in a way that it doesn't hurt it from doing what it does best. And that is lay down the basic 
laws and structure, proportion, beauty, and harmony that allows life to exist. Joe, when you and I and Myra were in Oslo, Norway, at the Congress for Solutions for Climate Change, uh, and the room was populated by some of the, I counted $37 trillion worth of investment capital uh, through the World Bank and the IMF, pension funds, insurance companies. The argument there was that they were thinking that fossil fuels were not such a great investment anymore. Pension funds were pulling out of investments. It seems to me that I'm not making a political statement, but rather a statement of fact, a repeating of a statement of fact, that the uh, economic big deals in the world are seeing uh, the hand that they've been dealt, and they're saying, we've got to play this very, very well, because the way we did business in the past may not be the way we're going to be doing business in the future. We're going to make wiser fiduciary decisions for people who trust us to spend their money. Yeah, I think, Don, you're right uh, in the way you characterize that conversation. You know, it's true that industries that depend on asking others to carry the burden of cost for them, including sometimes with very serious physical threat and harm, are not as viable in the economy that we're emerging into as businesses that don't do that. Economists refer to those kind of things, let's say pollution, air pollution, as a negative externality, meaning that it's an external effect that is a negative outcome that lands on other people. That's what externality means. And if you generate a lot of negative externalities, you're essentially not fully funding your own business model. You're not paying to make sure those things don't happen. You may not even be able to pay to make sure those things don't happen. Um, if we consider just one case where a knock-on effect of climate degradation and biodiversity degradation and excessive uh, extractive land use uh, is the zoonotic transfer of viruses from animals to humans. And we've seen now the third this century when there were no such cases of zoonotic coronavirus transfers uh, in modern history before this century. Um, the cost of that mistake is trillions of dollars. The world has already spent $12 trillion just trying to manage the emergency. And yet hunger is spreading. Poverty is expanding. Institutions are failing. Small businesses, local community economies are under threat, if not already collapsing, as a result of that terrible mistake in the way that we do business. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission, a regulatory agency in the United States that oversees certain types of financial activity, published a report in September that said that the entire financial system is at risk because of climate change. Not 
that there might be a crash, but that the system itself could be destabilized and fail. This is a commission made up of Republicans and Democrats. All five members were appointed by President Trump. They tasked a subcommittee with producing this report to examine all the science, to examine the best options we have available for responding. And what they found is perhaps the most serious alarm call we've seen from a U.S. agency. They're saying that the wealthiest institutions in the world do not have the means to respond. We have to get ahead of this crisis. And Don, to go back to what you said earlier about sustainability, it's about being here tomorrow. You know, the word has become almost synonymous with environmental protection or environmental responsibility, but it is really a, about human activity and human interest and our ability to function sustainably. When the United Nations Development Program asked 8 million people across 174 countries in a survey known as the My World Survey, asking them about the future they want. And the question was asked about sustainability. Should the world have a goal of being sustainable? What they found was that across the world, in all different contexts, ordinary people felt that it was entirely unreasonable to think of any goal as anything other than sustainable. Why would your goal in terms of economic development, in terms of education, in terms of human health or ending hunger, or in terms of people's rights, gender equality, reducing income inequality, the right to peace, justice, and strong institutions, why would any of those things not be done with sustainability in mind? That was the word of the people of the world saying, we want to work together for a better world. That's sustainability. Um, you can't be sustainable if what you do harms others. Um, and that goes back to this discussion about which businesses are viable. The, the businesses that are most competitive naturally in a comprehensive sense are the ones that don't generate a lot of harm and cost. The ones that are used to generating a lot of harm and cost and essentially getting away with it, having other people pay to clean up their mess, those businesses are not competitive as a general rule. They only appear to be competitive because they get a lot of free help. In an economy that doesn't want those kind of things to undermine everybody else's well-being, uh, they become non-viable very quickly. And so I think there is an existential question for businesses that have been responsible for the sustainability crisis. They need to figure out how to get to a better world fast. Myra, you worked awfully hard on the UN's SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, I'm going to ask you a tough question. Of the goals, I believe there are 17, of the goals, is there one more important than the other? Are they listed in, in the importance of the approach and attack that people must take to reach a sustainable system? This was um, this underlies our conversation, this question. We were quite insistent that 
it be understood as a framework that these goals were interdependent, interlinked, interrelated, not to be seen in any hierarchical way. And it works best that way, that as you are perhaps looking at an entry point or an area, if you apply it to a local community that has a particular area of urgent need, that as you address it, that the way that it becomes indeed sustaining and maintaining as a system, as a framework, is that you look to be sure that all other, that all the 16 others are also not impacted in a, um, in a, in a way that's not beneficial as you work with any area, any particular area that may be suggested by an SDG. It's really important. And this is, this is what it means to be looking at a system. I mean, the quality circles way back in the 70s, in my early years of engineering, we were learning a lot from the Japanese, and they spent a lot in this area of looking at a decision in a system and looking at the entire system for its impacts. And the SDG framework has something else there to of note, and that is, and it's a job not complete, by the way, and that is the idea of the targets and indicators that underlie each and every one of those SDGs. And that's an area where we get to say together, how do we know that we've achieved the SDG? What would be the indicator of that? And that is an incomplete list. And it should be seen that way. And so what's driving today's conversation is that perhaps this is a framework for the economy. What if the economy worked that way? That we have the metrics and indicators that go beyond just cash. Because what we have, business is asking for help if they continue to look at just cash. The feedback and the signaling is not there to protect the environment if we look at GDP alone and we look at the algorithms that underlie finance. So this is really in terms of a framework and um, the SDGs give us some direction as to how to look at framing the economy, the new economy, I would say that allows us to come into a recognition of the the fundamental underpinning that nature is to human health, well-being, and prosperity. I think that's a homework assignment for our listeners to uh, go to their search engines and look up uh, two words. Uh, Look up first uh, SDGs, or Sustainable Development Goals, UN, and you will then read what has been happening, perhaps with your knowledge, but maybe maybe you didn't know that there were people who were working very, very hard on trying to develop a new system that has all species, including human beings, in mind, so that we can sustain an existence faced with uh, the possibility that it could very easily end if we do nothing at all. The other to look up is macrocritical. It's a term you're going to hear often 
and it has meaning. It has weight. And you should spend some time immersing yourself in that. Because if there, if this podcast does anything, it is to help you understand, but also to inspire you to look at what has already been done and what needs to be done. Because, quite frankly, I'm an optimist. I see every day the terrible consequences of climate change and all of the other crises that are facing uh, the planet. But I end up being inspired by the work of others. Joe, you work in food security and food sustainability. I say food security because uh, that's a term uh, very like food sovereignty that Myra knows a lot about because of her work with indigenous people, that we can be sovereign in our food sources. But I think the most recent report by the UN said that a, a acreage the size of the state of Montana disappears as arable land uh, somewhere on the globe every day. So the ability of us to grow food because of climate change is going to affect almost every conceivable part of our uh, international relationships, our role in the international world, and how do we save people? How do we save their land? And the answer is, optimistically, it can be done. We don't have to say that it's lost forever because with new simple farming practices, just slight changes, uh, we can take almost all of the, uh, the carbon dioxide molecules that are going into our atmosphere, causing us to be warmer, more hurricanes, more powerful hurricanes, uh, more flooding events, more unusual weather events, we can avoid these things. The events that wipe out food production, we can do something about that. And it's off the shelf. It's not something that has to be developed by some Nobel Prize winner. It has already been developed and is there. In your work, Joe, on uh, food sustainability, do you see that happening? So, Don, that is a great question. Um, I'd like to say a word about sovereignty. You know, um, I mentioned earlier the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. And in democratic societies, there is a fundamental recognition that the people are sovereign. Um, and sometimes that idea causes people to resist solutions that are recommended by institutions as the best way forward. The problem is that we often find ourselves suffering from unsustainable behaviors and practices that are hugely costly to us as individuals and as a society um, and that are falling on us because unaccountable institutions have robbed us of our sovereignty. And I'd like to just signal that I think we should come back to sovereignty as a key question. Um, our food security is very much at risk. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has shown in its 
report on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius in its report on land um, and land use change and on its report on the cryosphere and the ocean, those three major reports of the last couple of years, that we are very much at risk of multiple breadbasket failure. What that means is major food producing regions like the Asian steppe or the central United States or California Central Valley or certain parts of South America or Europe could fail simultaneously. What that would mean is that the global market for food would not have a backstop. It would not have a way to fill in the gap. And if you had multiple breadbasket failure, you would have a rapid increase in food prices everywhere on earth in every society. Um, that is a hugely destabilizing moment when it happens in isolation and when it's a relatively small price increase. But when it's universal and it's major and there's no solution, we've never dealt with something like that before. Uh, the scale of damage from the pandemic and shutdowns and economic challenges related to supply chains being disrupted would be nothing compared to that disaster. So the awareness of that problem is certainly growing and countries are becoming more thoughtful about how they work together to prevent that type of scenario from unfolding. But the problem is it's not all under our control. If we let climate change spiral out of control, we won't be able to prevent some of those uh, collapses. So a major question we have to ask ourselves about whether this transition to sustainable farming and food production can happen is what are we aiming for? The economic writer Kate Raworth in her book Donut Economics explains that for us to have sustainable thriving, we need to operate above the floor of human need. We need to be able to meet basic needs, obviously, but we need to also operate beneath the ceiling of planetary boundaries. Instead of thinking towards infinite GDP expansion, which just means the infinite expansion of consumption, we should be thinking about what that consumption does for human well-being and for the well-being of the systems we depend on. Farmers and producers right now have challenges in implementing some of these solutions because they live on razor-thin margins. The food economy has been structured in a way that is designed to send more and more and more of the overall revenue coming through the food system, the money you spend at the supermarket or in a restaurant, to major companies that own a lot of land, that control a lot of production, that take profits out of the commodity trade, and that don't leave a lot of room for producers for small producers. They're dependent on technological assistance. They're dependent on chemical inputs to protect their output, their production, so that they can earn enough money. And if we leave all those incentives in place and we leave everything in the food system pointing in that same direction, it's going to be challenging for small producers to make the transition to organic farming, to sustainable production, to modes of food production that are good for nature, good for clean water, good for life in the ocean. 
Um, but it's often said that the biggest opportunity the world has ever seen is the opportunity to shift from dirty energy to clean energy. It may well be that an even bigger opportunity than that is the opportunity to shift from destructive farming practices that erode arable land, destroy ecosystems, and undermine biodiversity while depleting human health and costing trillions of extra dollars per year to deal with these negative outcomes. Shifting from that standard to a standard where we incentivize and reward innovation and sustainable production, where we know that a farmer who wants to move to organic production and who wants to be able to do that in a way that is maybe labor intensive, but also produces better human health outcomes for everyone in their, uh, in, in society. If we reward those behaviors, then we can help those farmers get through the initial cost of making a change. We can help them outcompete the industries that are dependent upon the rest of us absorbing harm and cost. And just like in energy, it's the same challenge. We have non-competitive business models that require massive assistance from the entire society and which result in essentially mass death, the deaths of millions of people every year because their practices are not optimal. We can shift away from that type of standard to a standard where the people producing the food have better lives and livelihoods, the communities around them have more diverse economies, and the people consuming the food, the rest of us, have better choices in our everyday lives where everything around us is more likely to give us good health and thriving. And in an economy that works like that, all of us have more sovereignty, all of us have greater ability to choose our own destiny to do the things we want to do. And maybe best of all, we would be supported by a system that is saying that that is our right and it will be secured. Myra, do you have anything to add to that? What is happening here is that a picture is being painted of a future I think we can all get behind. That there is a challenge that's before us and it's the planet that's leading the way. We are of nature. Nature underlies the things we care about, the things we love, the things that will always endure, and that we will um, find a sense of awe and curiosity that spurs us into more living. This, this conversation, thank you, Joseph, uh, for laying it out so beautifully, shows us the opportunity. And I, I'd like to be sure that in future episodes, we continue to dive deep into these areas. That's a perfect place for us to call it quits for today's podcast. But uh, I would like to echo what Myra said, that we will focus on the possibilities, the hope, the optimism that things can be done together to change the likely outcome if we don't do anything at all. Thank you very much, Myra and Joe, and we'll see you in the next podcast. This has been Geoversive Earth Intelligence. You can learn more by going to our website at geoversive.net. We'll see you next time.